Resident Evil Transformation Lighting Specialist to Arc Residential Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. On this week's podcast, Joe Barres joins us from Malibu, California, where he's founder and president of TriStar Electric and Automation. Our guest today grew up immersed in high-end New York City construction projects as a third-generation electrical contractor. He spent the early decades of his career navigating and troubleshooting complex job sites working with clients and renowned architects in the ultra-luxury residential markets of New York City, the Hamptons, and Greenwich, Connecticut. Then in 2013, drawn to California's sunshine and quality of life, Joe and his family moved from the East Coast to Malibu, where he has established his company as a sought-after designer and consultant in the most exclusive areas of Southern California, combining his qualifications as an electrical contractor lighting designer, and low-voltage integrator. Joe Veres, thanks for joining us today to talk about your career and to share your industry insights. Thank you so much. That was an amazing intro, and I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's exciting to be with you, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, even more than a lot of them, just because I don't know you personally, and I, I'm going to be finding out a lot just by talking to you here uh, right. For the podcast, which is great, very spontaneous, and um, I, I do want to to get into your um, you know industry insights, but um, it's really rare for me to meet someone who's an accomplished low voltage integrator. That's typical for me, but also has the electrical contractor experience that you do, and you throw in the lighting designer part of it. And lighting installation and design is such a a, a new and exciting part of our industry that you've kind of become the triple threat for me. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. But before we get into all right. of it, um, I want to talk about your upbringing as a third generation electrical contractor. Um, in your bio, you, it says that from a young age, you're passionate about learning the trade and understanding how things worked. How far back do you recall being interested in tech and the electrical trade of your father and your grandfather? Sure. So it, it's crazy because, you know, now being 52, when I look back at my uh, my entire work career, it really started in the fourth grade. And it, I, I specifically remember the actual day I was in. Um, I lived in Staten Island at the time um, and I was a young, young kid and I was playing outside during recess. And I look over and I see my father and every kid that sees his dad at school is kind of nervous. Like, oh, my God, what's my dad doing here? And he was with uh, somebody that worked for him. His name is uh, Anthony. And I ran over to him. I said, Dad, what's going on? What are you doing? And they were uh, working on the, 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 uh, the lighting for the out, outside of the play, play area, the pool. or I, I don't really remember exactly what it was. I know there was something to do with the pool. And um, that was when I first like, kind of just got intrigued. Like, oh, my God, you're like fixing something. You have to do with lighting. Or, and it was just like really intriguing to me. And that's when I started to, you know, wanted to go to work with my dad when I had a day off of school or, you know, um, you know, some days over the summer. And then I had the opportunity to work with my grandfather, which was wild because, you know, he was very old school, uh, very tough uh, New Yorker. And this may be off topic, but I'd love to share the story is that, um, you know, my grandfather, my father, let, let me work with him during the day. You know, no big deal. And I was a young kid. I don't know how old I was, maybe 12. And. We were in New York City, if you remember, because I know you used to live there. There was like little elevators that would take you from the basement up to the sidewalk. And there these big grates that kind of open up. And I remember standing on the on the sidewalk. And as the elevator comes up, 
Um, I said, oh, my God, you know, uh, Grandpa, you're bleeding. And he was like bleeding from his head. <laughs> and, you know, he must have done something downstairs as he was coming up on the ladder, whatever the, the case was. And he takes out his handkerchief, very old school, New York, Brooklyn, you know, uh, tough man. And he pulls out his handkerchief. I remember he does like that. And he puts it on his head and he just keeps working. Like there was no stopping, like not even a skipping a beat. And um, he, that was just the kind of guy he is. So I, I was surrounded by these type of um, stories. I have thousands of them, you know, being with the men, being in the field, you know, being against the odds in construction and trying to navigate New York City and these buildings and housing projects to, you know, uh, type A buildings where you're in, in, you know, meetings with Bank of America and, and just completely wild little scenarios and I think when I started getting into the industry and I started working as a young uh, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, um, I felt like I had a lot to prove because, you know, I had the opportunity to get a job from my father. I mean, I'm not going to ever deny that. I didn't, you know, pound the pavement. I asked for a, a job and he gave me one at $5 an hour and I started at 5 a.m. That was just how it went. So I had that opportunity, which is amazing, right? Yeah. But I had to keep that. You know, I wasn't the boss's son in my eyes. I was like, I got to prove myself to these 20, 30, 40-year-olds um, that I'm working on there because I don't want to be this young little kid. So I was the first one to, you know, get my hands dirty, first one to open my mouth when I had a question, first one to go to school at night, you know, to get into the apprenticeship program. Like I was just all over it because I felt like I had no choice instead of just like kind of just riding my way out, you know, and um, and that's really what was the best education ever is to be in it, to do it. And to this day, that experience all these years later, 30 years later, you know, it's like it was yesterday. You know, when when you're in the field, whether you're an integrator, electrical contractor, uh, plumber, it doesn't really matter. When you know what it is to bring wire into a building, take a delivery, deal with the freight elevator guy, how to get into to a loading dock, how to navigate, not saying certain things if maybe the property manager doesn't know something, or you have to watch what you say. So there's the educated aspect to it. Then you obviously, obviously, you know what's in the scope of work, what's included, where's overtime. You know, what are working hours, noisy hours, all these things that I've learned over the years, um, you know, just like anything else, gives you experience and, and really helps you, um, you know, just be a better businessman. And I know from talking to my friends that have integration companies and they're not electricians, they're mm -hmm. just, you know, low voltage folks, but they just some of the basics of New York City um, businesses is the parking. I mean, things like getting in oh, from right. wherever logistics. your location is. Yeah. The logistics are, are a level above everything else in the country that you have to deal with. I'm sure there right. are other, similar cities, maybe Chicago or somewhere like that, where you have dealing like that. But New York is uniquely difficult <laughs> to, to do work. At. And I think that's what actually helped me in California as I was growing my business out here is the, the ease of doing business is only easy to me or easier to me because I know what it is to not have it easy and to be more difficult. So, you know, um, I, I tell the story all the time. The first project that I got in California in a commercial space, I, um, it was for a record company and I pulled up to the, uh, to the uh, circular driveway of the high rise, you know, type a building in, in uh, Wilshire and Fairfax. And I ran inside like in a panic that my car is going to get towed, you know, but it's <laughs> not, I mean, it's in a beautiful area, right? Museums everywhere. And, I introduced myself to the doorman and he says, oh, yeah, we're expecting you. Please pull your truck down into the uh, parking lot. You'll see so-and-so. He'll give you a parking spot. This guy will take you up in the freight elevator. He'll open up the suite for you and let me know if you, if you need anything. And I did all that. But in my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. You mean I can actually come into your building, park, go inside an elevator, 
go upstairs, go into the suite and actually start my job. I said, in New York, that's a three-day job right there. Your insurance <laughs> yeah. is wrong. Nobody knew you were coming. They didn't give us proper clearance. There's, you know, freight elevator hours, no deliveries after eight. All that stuff is now taken out the window. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Well, take us back a little bit to your early career before we get to California and, sure. and how, how uh, well established you've gotten there. Um, so you worked for your dad and, and you're doing these projects. Uh, you, you do an apprentice um, education, which is part of obviously the electrical trade. Um, did you also take college classes at one point? It looked like you did. Um, I yeah, I was in college for a couple of years. I actually, I went to, to school at the University of Hartford and then I was out in college in Tampa for a while, but they weren't trade related. That was more about just me, you know, getting the standard education um, for liberal arts. And I really didn't know like where, like why I actually went to college, you know, and I think about that sometimes now, even as an, as an older adult is that I didn't have the guidance from my particular school that I went to to say, hey, you know, Joey, what are you interested in? It was like, I remember that specific incident too, when we had to go see our guidance counselor to talk about our next education path. You know, my, my interest in construction didn't really come up. It was like, okay, well, you're going to college. What do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. They said, okay, great. Liberal arts next. And it was like that. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I wish you would have talked to me about my interest, about my trade. I played music too. You know, I, I know how to play guitar and drums, not well, but it's fun for me. And so who knows like where I could have been interested in instead of just going to take simple classes and not having directed towards really what my passions were. But um, so I dropped out of college uh, early uh, prior to my, uh, my four-year degree. And I just wanted to start working. And that's where that, that uh, five in the morning, $5 an hour opportunity came to me because I just wanted to work. I didn't want to be 20, you know, two years old, 23 years old, getting out of school, um, first learning the industry. I just wanted to get into it right away. And um, so I just wanted to start working and, and that's how it began. So, you know, started off in the, in the rough and tumble world of construction, um, you know, working in manholes, pulling feeders into buildings, um, mm. doing shutdowns, night calls, emergency calls. This was before cell phones. So I would get beeped, you know, with a beeper and I'll be at a restaurant. I'm in my twenties. I was out. I was having fun with my friends and I get a call. I got to go to Queens, you know, that a transformer blew up or, so, you know, crazy stuff like that. So I was involved wow. with all of that, like, you know, uh, emergency work, um, you know, climbing up extension ladders and housing projects and upgrading lighting and cameras for security and dealing with intercoms and just everything you could think of. And then that kind of transcended over to the years in getting into the, uh, the corporate TI world okay. where some of the landlords that we worked for really liked what we were doing, especially because, you know, now we had a family business going on because my dad was, was, was the boss and he had his whole crew and my father never worked in the field at this stage of his life, but um, he, he ran the company. And then my brother and I were, we're, we're coming into the industry too. So now we were looked at as this like great little family unit and that got us into the corporate world. So I started working for Club Med, doing their TIs, um, mm. trading firms, law firms, advertising agencies, lobby upgrades, turnstiles. Then 9-11 happened and we did all sorts of million jobs after 9-11. We had guys actually in Jersey City that we unfortunately had to trans, um, transport by boat to one of our clients who had a, a residential complex called Battery Park City where the half of the building was blown up. I mean, it was horrible where, you know, inside we had to do temporary lighting and, you know, we didn't like, you know, go through the rubble. I'm not trying to paint the picture that we were like right. saving lives or anything, but, but we did restore power to these buildings and do the renovation um, after um, the, the weeks of September 11th. So all this, this stuff happened. So as I was on these jobs, um, the low voltage guy would come on the job mm -hmm. and I didn't like that. 
Okay. I didn't like that because they were pulling wire and I was pulling wire. I'm the electric contractor in these jobs. And don't forget, this is back in the 90s where the word integrated didn't really exist yet. Okay. Um, they were just low voltage guys, you know. Um, so they were pulling Cat 3, Cat 5 was just coming out. And um, when they come on the, my experience at least, when they would come on the job, but these are big 30,000 square foot floors, you know, multi uh, uh, floor high rises, two, three floors at a time per these, uh, you know, internal staircases for these big companies. The, um, we've been there for months doing all this big, heavy electrical work, fire alarm, you name it. And when the, uh, when the low voltage contract come on the job, they didn't know anything. They, they needed to know the lay of the land. Oh, where are you bringing us power? What rooms are this? And can I borrow a ladder? And it just, after years of that, I'm like, not, I'm just over this. Hmm. So that's when um, I started really learning about low voltage. And then we started taking that work um, and then trying to sell ourselves as the single point of entity. Like we're running pipe. We might as well just do it all. And we're knowledgeable about these systems. Now, when I started going to get certified by AMP and, and Ortronics at the time and um, Leviton uh, Telecom and all that kind of stuff, more in the, in the commercial environment. So that kind of transcended me to not be afraid of a low voltage wire. Hmm. Back in those days, believe it or not, an electrician, would be afraid of a two-conducted doorbell wire. Like they're just afraid of it. Like they may even run away from it. That's how afraid they were. There's such a disconnect between line and low voltage. And I really didn't understand why it's wire. Like what's the difference? Yeah. So, you know, um, and it kind of made me proud to take over, over low voltage scope because back in the old days, which is something that I, I kind of experienced as a kid um, when I would go with my dad on an emergency call. He did in Brooklyn. There was um, in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of bingo parlors. I don't know if you ever heard that. Term, where people used to <laughs> yeah. bingo. It was like a thing. I, I guess it's before my time, but they used to have the microphone and all sorts of public address systems and nurse call stations at hospitals. And my dad did those intercom jobs. And did okay. that low voltage work and speakers and, and closed circuit TV cameras back in the old days with RG59 cabling. So it wasn't, I don't know, I guess I did it because, you know, he, there wasn't, it wasn't like unheard of, you know, back then they were all hungry for work too. So if they would have asked my father, if he knows how to like wire a spaceship, he would have said, yeah, of course I do. You know? <laughs> right. And then he'd figure it out after that. So, so I had that kind of like hunger and, and, and knowledge, uh, I'm sorry, thirst for knowledge. Right. So, you know, that just kind of progressed over the years, you know, learning about low voltage and data racks and, and that got me into doing jobs for Wells Fargo and just all sorts of, um, you know, data centers. Okay. Yeah. And then you, you uh, when do you start working with homeowners and, and residences? Got it. So that was the next step. So when you're starting to do, I think, really good, good work in the field and I'm, and I'm making uh, good personal connections with these CFOs of these companies, the next thing you know, I'm in their Park Avenue apartments doing their renovation, meeting their residential GCs. And that's where it all kind of started. It wasn't like all of a sudden I'll go, oh, you guys can do residential. Great. I'm going to give you a job. It was more through the relationships from these landlords or, or you know, high end tenants and, uh, or hedge fund guys that um, wanted us to now work in their homes. Mm hmm. So yeah, that that's makes sense. how that transcended into that. And then I really learned a lot about the residential business. I learned how different it is. Okay. Um, you know, um, not so much in New York City, but when I got out to Connecticut with Romex and plastic boxes and, you know, that kind of understanding how the homeowner lives. And um, that was like kind of the next step. So, you know, it was obviously doing apartments in New York City, like luxury apartments. Then uh, when I moved to Connecticut, uh, once we had our, our first child, we moved out there and then I, I had an office in, in Greenwich. So I was bouncing back and forth. So I had crews in both in both states. Um, mm -hmm. And that was just how I got into the high-end uh, luxury residential world. Then when I moved out to California, um, I was kind of trying to figure it out. Like, you know, where is my next step going to be? And um, 
what, what I was surprised is, is you would think it'd just be residential, right? But it would actually start up as very not very commercial and very retail. So once I got my network going and everybody knew me from back home, I started building those relationships because New York and LA, they're really not that far apart. A lot of people, architects, interior designers, and general contractors do, do have uh, bi-coastal offices. Mm. So when I started calling on them and they were happy that I'm working on here and I, I built a really great team, um, I started doing Apple stores, H&M stores, Rodeo Drive, Flagship, Lacoste, and Pomelotto Jewelry, and Ralph Lauren, and Rolex, and Peloton, and all these kind of like flagship uh, retail stores. And then it dawned upon me. I said, I got these jobs off the ground and they're all like perfect. I really, I think our work is perfect. Okay. But as the bidding kept going on and things get, get more competitive out here in, in, in LA, I didn't really bring as much to the table if you're just doing what's on the drawings, because then it just comes time to, in the commercial world is like, who's least expensive. And so I started to walk away from those opportunities because I felt like I didn't really bring value to those jobs. It was the luxury residential spaces where I bring value. I bring my lighting design, my understanding how these wealthy people live. If it's their second or third home, I love talking to them about, you know, how they expect them to live in the home, where they listen to music, do they have kids, do they travel, you know, what's their routine? Um, are they light sleepers? All that kind of like psychological stuff I need to pull out of them so I can design the job properly or educate the design team that they already have in place to see how I can help. Because for you to just tell me to just do something based on the drawings, that's not really what I enjoy doing because I didn't, it's like almost like hiring an artist. I, I sell this, tell the story all the time. If you're really wealthy and you commission an artist to paint you something for your, for your dining room or your entry hall for a big master painting that you're really excited about. And when the canvas showed up at the artist's house, it was paint by numbers. You would say, I'm not painting that. I mean, that's just somebody else's like connected dots. What fun is that? And that's how I feel at this stage of my career, right? So I just want to be able to be part of these jobs where I can really use my uh, my experience, my knowledge, my my understanding of the of the technology and and design it properly, or at least tweak out the existing design to make it an epic experience, not just to throw a lot of tech into the job and make it really expensive. Well, I want to dive into your your focus on the pre-construction meetings and all that. But um, first, we're going to take a, uh, a short break um, for a uh, word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Residential Tech Talks is brought to you by NICE, the global manufacturer of smart home security and building automation solutions. NICE is bringing together 30 years of innovation with award-winning products from Elan, Speakercraft, and Panamax to create a holistic ecosystem for builders, integrators, and consumers. Learn more about how you can create one home with one solution at go.niceforyou.com backslash RTT. Welcome back. We're talking with Joe Burress, founder and president of TriStar Electric and Automation in Malibu, California. Joe, you're starting to talk about your, um, your focus on asking questions, getting to know your clients, finding out what their lifestyle is before you even get into designing a system. And, and I, I read something that really caught my eye in your bio about your focus on working in the pre-construction phase and really yes. talking to every, all the stakeholders, like the architects early on. And I know that's a huge, um, it, it's a, it's a thing that doesn't happen enough in our, in the low voltage side, the CDS side of the industry. Um, getting in with that architect in the beginning of the project. Um, are you finding that you're able to get in early on most of the projects and, and start talking about these important um, 
lifestyle questions and things like that? Is it how, how what's the key I would to say doing maybe that? It, yeah, it's not all the project. It's about 50%, unfortunately, that I, I want it to be 100% because it's required. It's necessary. So many times I have two plans that I just got this week for two residential projects. And these are big estate homes. These aren't little cookie cutter houses that nobody cares about technology, right? These, these, are, these are large projects and it's just not designed properly. And, you know, I, I always get that feedback like, oh, well, that's just for plan check and whatever. But I don't care about that. I'll tell you why. If you're a homeowner, because this is what happens. I see this every single day. You're a homeowner. You're so excited. You got this new lot. You're a developer. You're, you're, you're excited. You got an architect on board. You have sometimes a structural engineer, maybe an electrical engineer, if you're going to, if you're going to need plan check and you, and they, you get this job. You don't really have any input. They just give you a set of drawings. You're all excited. You, you don't even know what they look like because you're not in the construction industry and you get a budget from all these general contractors and subcontractors. And you think that that's going to be your price. So it's going to be $4 million and you're all excited to build your home. But then it, it goes out to the integrator. Oh, that, that's not included. Oh, we're going to do panelized lighting. Oh, we've got to remove the local switch lights. Oh, you're not going to get credit from your electrician that because he doesn't really feel like doing that work. Uh, that's just his price. Or, you know, there's no talk about bringing conduits to the pool equipment for, you know, future, you know, connectivity of, for Ethernet and, you know, landscape lighting. Just every single thing that we could throw into this job that we know you're going to have. You're going to have gates. You're going to have cameras at the gates. You're going to have, you know, um, maybe a savant system or, or a control four system for, for home automation. Do you want the pool on the system? Do you not? Do we have any stud wall space for all the, you know, Lutron panels or is the AV rack room going to be ventilated? Is there a room to put the AV rack or, you know, all this stuff that we should be talking about. Are we doing invisible speakers? What size speakers? Why do we need certain size speakers over others? You know, do you want surround sound in this room? Where do you listen to, to audio? You know, are you an audiophile? Do you love turntables? Will it be a dedicated theater? You know, um, do you want, what kind of, how many zones do we need to, to create for lighting? I mean, I'm for, for obviously for lighting, but for, for sound and, you know, um, pre-wiring for any shading or TV locations or, you know, all that stuff. I could talk forever on that, right? Right. So then all of a sudden, every sentence I just said to you just now is a dollar amount. Mm. So wouldn't you rather know that you're going to spend $5 million and have no change orders than $4 million and then another twenty grand, another 10000 another 5000 another 16000 It frustrates you. It delays the job. Things have to get reframed. You get so frustrated and so mad. Why is my job taking so long and cost me so much money? So you fire that contractor. Then you mm. hire another guy. And he charged you even more to undo everything that was just done. And how many times have you talked to somebody that, oh, the, oh, the house – Oh my God, what a nightmare. Construction <laughs> is not hard if it's done by the right people. That's it. Yeah. So do you have partnerships with um, builders that you can get in earlier than? I do. I, yeah. do. I, I want more because a lot of them are still, you know, they're under the gun too. They have to deliver something for their client. It's not like they don't want to do a great job, but they're busy too. Right. So um, the good news is, is, you know, we have a really beautiful showroom here in Malibu where I just beg you to come. I sit down with you. We talk about your job, your past job, your future job, what to look for. I go through all the different systems. I demonstrate catcher lighting and obviously all the different keypads. And what is a keypad? What does that mean, panelized lighting? Some people don't even know what that means versus RF and why we like, you know, to have uh, low voltage keypads. And, you know, there's a million things that we do here. Talk about shading and pockets, you know, for shading. And what is mm -hmm. room darkening versus blackout? I mean, everything that, that every integrator and lighting designer and electric contract have to talk about, right? Um, and so then they go, oh, my God, this is so great. Why isn't everybody doing this? Or now I understand what finishes are and what recess mount means. And, you know, um, 
it just kind of sets the tone for the project and gets you excited about it because, you know, I've seen too many very expensive homes, especially here in LA, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, expensive. And it's like the same 90s construction. You have a four gang switch box when you first walk in and then it's a spec home. They didn't want to spend the money, but they're not realizing that now the new homeowner is going to have to renovate or they're going to do RF products. And it doesn't change the look and the feel of the home. It's just, it seems crazy to me to still be building. The only reason why there were multiple light switches is because that was what was available at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't still like go into a house and light a candle, right. To, to, to put a match <laughs> in a candle, but that's used to what they have. Then they invented electricity. Right? right. And then they invented dimmer. So you dim your lights and now there's panelized lighting. So you have to have remote, like it's all these things are progressing, but it hasn't caught up yet. I, I see. Um, in your line of uh, products that you you sell, Lutron comes up a lot, and you mentioned Catra, which is owned by Lutron. Yes. Um, what, how early on did you get involved with Lutron? How important are they as a partner for you? Oh, uh, they're very important as a partner for us. So, first of all, um, I have done uh, two commercial spaces. It was for a, a high end women's clothing company in Culver City. I did their corporate office and I did their uh, first retail store. And at that time, this was like five years ago, I think, um, Catcher was specified on the project by the uh, lighting designer. Hmm. And it was pre-Lutron uh, acquisition. Okay. And I just loved the product. I thought it was amazing, right? He had these X2 keypads and the lighting and the color temperature, how it looked on the clothes. So when I did my showroom uh, renovation here, I put Catcher in there. Hmm. About a year later, we heard about Lutron buying Catcher and I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. And I was so proud of myself because I was already a Catcher dealer at the time, <laughs> but I was like, wow, we are on the same page because they had the same feeling that I did. So I was forward thinking enough to, you know, put this product in here because I loved it. It wasn't about, oh, I can make money on it extra because I could supply it. it was, I, I wasn't able to buy the Catcher direct at the time because that wasn't a Lutron product. So it was kind of cool that I was on that same page. So it was very easy to get my showroom certified as a catcher showroom in Malibu uh, because of that. Um, but Lutron is an amazing company. They, they really are an amazing company. Um, you know, I, I'm in this industry 30 years. I've dealt with a million companies, right? And I've been to their Pennsylvania R&D facility many times. I've been to all their training and just know their whole staff. And, and they have a, a saying, take care of the customer or always take care of the customer, something like that. And it's actually true. You call up tech support, you meet a salesperson. It's just really what it's about. And they have like that New York family kind of vibe also growing up in, in New York. That's where their, their family is from. So that really transcends into a global company of what they are. So we do, um, we're fortunate to represent Lutron in the hospitality space. So we have been doing many of their hotels where we do the guest room controls. So we design, supply, and program the guest room controls uh, for, for hotels. And then obviously, you know, homework systems. Uh, we don't really get too involved in the Radio Raw products. I, I feel that that's, you know, more for the uh, retrofit line. And we're really more of a new construction company. And um, we, we love to stay with homeworks and Ketra and shading as well. Yeah, and shading as well. I, I was going to ask you, that's like an important uh, part of it. But uh, as you know, we, we talk a lot about lighting and the opportunity for lighting. It looks like you're you're established in, in lighting fixtures as well, and you have a lighting designer um, pedigree. So a couple of things. First of all, um, did you go to training to become a lighting designer, or do you have a lighting designer that you hired for your Right. So no, yes and no. So, so <clears throat> I've been working in lighting for all these years, right? So obviously, it's on-the-job training 
mm-hmm. for you know 30 years from the commercial to the retail to the residential environment, knowing all these manufacturers, physically installing these products when I was working with my tools and really understanding layers of light, doing my own education. And then through the American Lighting Association to become a lighting associate is really where I got my uh, accreditation from. But, you know, I feel... You know, it's it's kind of arrogant and, and I hope it doesn't come across this way, but there's nothing like like getting your hands dirty, you know, yeah. and you could have 60 years going to dental school. But if you never worked on somebody's tooth, I don't care what kind of dentist you say you are, you're not a dentist. Right. So it's really important. So I think lighting designers um, that go to school for architecture and lighting design, they're brilliant. But they also need field practicality and input of what, because I'm so many jobs I've seen cut sheets on zero to 10 volt dimming, they, they, they check the box, but they don't really know what that is and what, how that implicates the wiring, how it, uh, how it affects the lighting panels and dimming modules and um, access doors if we need certain things and more modules you put in there, more more RF little controls, more things can go wrong and then do we need repeaters? So there's a lot to do with that. Like why are you just checking off that box? Maybe you should learn about you know the intelligent lighting solution by Lutron, which is the old ecosystem, which is now the new product where you have a digital addressable system without having, and it still goes to 0.1% dim and obviously the Ketra too. And, you know, mm-hmm. companies like DMF go to 1% dim which is epic, you know? So mm-hmm. there's a lot to know um, and not just about like a, a cut sheet, you know, and we've had issues on, on projects where with a lighting designer, where they specified a specific fixture, which I will not mention the name. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible to deal with, horrible to install. They couldn't meet up with the product um, uh, shipping dates, so they had to send us the parts and pieces. They sent us the can, the module, the brackets. We had to basically build the fixtures on site, like as if we were like an assembly line mm. because they couldn't do it in-house. And then it just was a nightmare. But then they kept specifying this fixture on other projects. And I couldn't understand after all that feedback, why would you use them again? Right. You know, because they're not having the pitfalls and not, it's not costing them more money to have to figure out how to mount certain, something under a, like a, a radius of a staircase outside for a marble staircase, like all sorts of stuff like that. So mm-hmm. having practical experience is what makes me specify specific brands because of they are right for the job, not just because that's just what we do or that's, right. you know, the, the uh, relationship I have with that particular person. There's a reason why we're specifying something, you know. Yeah, I had an opportunity to visit DMF last fall, and uh, so I, I, I see how focused they are on the integration channel now. And you, with your electrical background and, uh, and lighting control, or lighting, yeah, lighting control, lighting design, you, you've gone through the early days of lighting fixtures, like you're describing just now. Then you have a company that's really trying to maybe simplify it for the integrator. Um, how important is a company? like DMF and others who are really embracing the low voltage side um, to, to really kind of make this a, an easier process for you. Yeah. So it's a very interesting um, question because uh, DMF, um, Lutron, and I believe it's like Lucifer and WAC and Coastal Source and um, probably that's about it at the moment that I could think of are doing an integrator channel of their lighting products, not all of it. So some still go through electrical supply as sure. distribution through the regular way, but then certain lines you can get through the um, direct uh, dealership agreement between yourself and the, and the manufacturer as an integrator. What I'm still trying to wrap my head around is how successful are integrators going to be getting into lighting when they don't know how to install it, wire it. They're not licensed to do it. They're not the electrical contractor on the job. So I'm still trying to figure that out. So 
I may be a little bit of a unicorn in the industry, and I just really hope it doesn't come across of anything except for genuine, is mm-hmm. that when you go to Cedia, which I've been to multiple times, you go to these tech summits, which I've been to, uh, you, now you have Lightapalooza. These are all lighting companies, and I'm the only electrician in the room. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand that. You know, it's not like they're only selling, you know, Crestron systems. And I get it, right? That's an integrator, you know, very, uh, you know, kind of a bespoke brand for, you know, the highest end integrator for programming. So the electric contract doesn't belong in that room. I get that. But being, you know, kind of a hybrid model myself, like I'm the I'm the audience, 100%. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to figure out and other integrators that have seen me speak on stage have come up to me and have contacted me because they need help trying to understand lighting, how to talk to the electrical contractor on the job. Do mm-hmm. they start an EC division for their own? How do they get licensed and, you know, what to do? Because I feel that the separation of electrician or electrical contractor and integrator for the last 15 years is slowly becoming narrowed as mm-hmm. people are now maybe taking my kind of approach to the hybrid model or integrators now getting more into lighting. And maybe starting an electrical division, but maybe in 10 or 15 years from now, there will only be one trade on the job. And that's going to be a wiring trade. Mm. They're going to do everything to do with wire. That's, well, that's just my, my, I, my opinion on that. Where it's well, going. I, think, I think I've heard some of the more um, informed, um, I guess, low voltage guys talk about it like this with lighting, that they are building partnerships with their electrical contractor um, trade partners uh, to where they're saying, look, you're still doing your job. I'm just doing the, the um, specification of this product that maybe you're not necessarily that familiar with, and you're still going to do the installation and we're, we're going to, you're going to make your money on, on that part of it. And then this, you know, um, there's, there's a, there's a way that they, they're both involved. Some of them are, having, you know, their own electrical part of their company. Yeah, I can touch on that. You know, um, yes, that makes total sense. Okay. However, it most likely has to be the electrical contractor that's already been contracted for the project because somebody has to do the service. Somebody has to do the temp light and power. Somebody has to do all the outlets. Somebody has to wire the appliances. Somebody's doing the Tesla charger. Somebody has to already be doing this work as contracted. Now, if you're the known integrator and you get brought onto this job super early by the design team and then you're running the whole job, then you could bring in your EC that you have a partner with and they'll get the whole project as long as the pricing and, and, you know, their manpower and everything quality work, you know, is satisfactory to the team. But I would find it hard to believe that, you know, XYZ would be on the job as the electric contractor. Then the integrator gets brought into the job and says, no, 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 I'm taking over the lighting package here, guys, because I do all the smarts and parts. I'm the designer. So electrician, you just do what you're doing. Forget the lighting. You don't even have to touch the lighting. I'm doing all the keypads. And then my guy who works for me, my other electro contractor is going to come in and do all the lighting. Right. I think you'd have a, there would be a weird disconnect on that because of filing, for who's responsible, for troubleshooting, um, and all that kind of stuff. So, sure. that makes so sense. I'm interested on, on, on really how they're – so the, the fact that they told you that's great, I just would love to learn more about how that's actually taking place. Yeah, I, I would I would say they're probably more likely to do what you're saying, that they're partnering yeah. with the, the electrician on that job and just saying, look, I'm, I'm not trying to step on your toes here. We're doing a lighting design and we're going to specify the products here um, because we control it. And you're still going to do the installation like you're doing all the other. Electrical. And I spoke about that exact topic at the Total Tech Summit. Um 
So my suggestion, though, if, if anybody's listening to this and they're going to go down that road, I think it's great. I just think that you need to, to you or your team needs to learn so much about that lighting fixture package. Mm-hmm. Understand the dimensions. If it's you know wet location, how what the dimming protocol is for the uh, for the drivers. If um, if it's for you know any remote drivers or anything that you need to know about um, layout, stringy lines for where they're going in line with the speakers and the sprinklers, and just do your homework. Mm-hmm. That way you don't have to rely on the electrician to do anything. And if you can become the the entity on the job where you really do control the lighting because you, you, you're you educated about it, you know, what kind of channel you need for the tape light and how many clips and just the whole nine yards, mm-hmm. then the electrician cannot say anything because you know more about the job than he does at this point. And now you're the proven smart guy. So right. I would recommend that instead of just saying, oh, yeah, the downlights will be there, figure it out. Um, that's not going to go over well. Let's um, talk a little bit more specifically about California regulations and things you deal with there from an energy standpoint. What are you um, doing on that in that regard? Are you dealing with a lot of solar integration in the home and and trying to do uh, energy storage, batteries and things like that? Yeah. So that's one area that I've always stayed away from. And and the reason why is um, when solar first came out, it was all about like trying to sell the product to the homeowner directly. Uh, there's going to be a rebate. We're going to find out what your electric bill is and show you how much we're going to save you. And that's just never really been anything of interest in, in me at all. So, so, and I've stuck, I've stuck with that, you know, even the backup power stuff we do with generators, it's very, very time consuming and difficult, you know? So we really like to just stay with the strong suit of what we are. Um, and, uh, so we just run the conduits when it has to be solar ready, um, or we meet with like the battery guy and make sure we understand like where there's going to be interfaces and junction boxes and, you know, the certain signage that has to go on our main switch gear that shows that there's a generator on property, there's solar on property. And I kind of help coordinate that with the contractor. If there's clearances, like I just kind of help, but by no means do I want to enter that, that world because that's, that's just really just not, I'm not passionate about it to be quite honest with you. Um, the, uh, other energy stuff that we have, which every California contractor has to deal with, which is the, the famous title 24 energy code compliance. So that really for us is more about just making sure that the, uh, fixtures that we're specifying are title 24 compliant, the exhaust fans are title 24 compliant, um, that they're JAA compliant as far as the fixtures and the lamps, um, to, uh, meet the energy codes for that certain fixtures that we have GU 10, which are the bayonet, like kind of bases. So you can't just put an incandescent bulb in there to satisfy mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the replacement of future incandescents if they buy them on eBay, things like that. Um, and obviously vacancy sensors in the uh, bathrooms and now in large walk-in closets, it's required. So um, we use uh, obviously Lutron RF uh, vacancy sensors, or sometimes we use Faraday, which is a wired system from Europe, which they're really small kind of uh, um, uh, motion or vacancy sensors that we can uh, also use uh, through an interface to uh, help match with the aesthetics. So, so th- those are like the two energy components that we're kind of involved in. So with your, um, obviously your, your background with electrical and then how you've evolved into the low voltage side of things, um, there, as you go into the home and you're talking about the audio part of it, was there a, um, a training there that needed to take place? And that's a lot of times that's where the low voltage, voltage guys start as the audio side. Um, yeah, you're interested in music probably helps a lot there, but what, what yeah. was that like for you? So, you know, it's a little bit of a learning curve because <clears throat> Every manufacturer wants to sell you their product. So once you started getting involved with the uh, with the different speaker manufacturers, it's a little overwhelming as um, as I'm getting into that space. I find that 
again, I'm hoping this comes across very genuine and humble, is that they're very product focused mm-hmm. on part numbers and woofer size. Like an eight inch speaker is 11 and three quarters. So why is it called an eight inch speaker? Oh, that's because of the woofer size. And I didn't get all that. And I still, after doing all these integration projects, I still don't understand it because I think it's wrong because you're painting a picture to an architect that they're going to have an eight inch grill in their ceiling and they come in and it's almost a foot. Mm-hmm. And I've had this, like, what is that? And like, I've had this discussion. And then you have, you know, the other manufacturers that make smaller speakers that match the light fixtures. And we all know mm-hmm. what brands they are, but you need more of them. And then you got to add a subwoofer and then you have more holes in your ceiling. So it's just about having that conversation. Yeah. But um, what is good about having uh, access to the manufacturer's reps, they're very helpful too, because when a client, a client tells me something, I want really good sound, Joey. That's what I want. Okay. And this is where I want it. That's all I need. I'm not going to bother the client with all sorts of technical information. So that's when I rely on the manufacturer to say, listen, this is what I, I'm, I'm thinking about. I want to put a subwoofer here. This one, I want a sound barn here. I want to do center left and right. I want two rears over here. This is going to be a different zone. And this is how I'm going to specify it. And, you know, they work with me on that. And so I like to lean on the, on, on the manufacturers for that to have them triple check and maybe, you know what? Why don't we present this to the homeowner? Then maybe we'll upgrade in the man cave to go with a little bit more of a higher, because obviously like B&W speaking, you could spend $60,000 on a speaker, you know? So we're not necessarily going down that, that road to the true audiophile that knows more about the audio than any integrator. You know, this is more of just a luxury homeowner of how could we utilize the space and give them that experience to, um, to, you know, make them, make them, you know, happy with the experience. So, well, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, I, I, I looked in uh, your your bio at one point, and it reminded me of of one of those. Uh, um, well, let, let's let's just be blunt. One of those Playboy interviews where they say, "In his free time, Joe enjoys surfing at sunrise." Oh, yeah. All so right, cool. so I got to ask you about surfing. I know a couple of guys in the industry who are surfers out west or in Hawaii. Yeah, were you a surfer on the East Coast before you moved out west? I wouldn't call myself a surfer on the East Coast. So what happened was this. Uh, I was uh, just about to turn 40. And I'm a New Yorker. I never physically saw a surfer before in my life. I never okay. actually saw one. I've seen my TV and all that, right? Yeah. So my uh, my wife and I were in Oregon. And I think this is right when we had kids or before we had kids. I can't really remember. Um, and I remember doing a hike with her in Ca- Cannon Beach, Oregon. And when we got to the top of this really beautiful mountain, I looked down at the ocean and because it, it was right on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the coast, I saw surfers surfing in the water. And I'm like, oh, my God, that, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I've never actually seen a surfer that's cold out. They're in a wetsuit. It's first thing in the morning. When I get back home, I want to do that. <laughs> that was just it. Okay. And um, when I got home, I, I, um, I went out to Montauk, which is at the end of Long Island. And um, I took a surf lesson. And the, uh, the instructor said, yeah, I, I can't take you out. It's too big. I'm like, too big. I'm like, what do you mean? Like I, I could swim. I'm an athlete. Like, no, I'm happy to do it. He's like, no, I can't take you out. It's just too dangerous. It's too big. And you'll get, you know, destroyed. So he says, do me a favor, go buy a boogie board or mm-hmm. rent the boogie board from this, from the place. And, uh, could just go on the ocean have fun and I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> so I did that. I just wanted to be in the water for, for some reason. Yeah. And uh, I went in the water and I just got destroyed on a boogie board. Okay. I just got wallowing water. It was like a hurricane swell in New York and it was just a nightmare. So same thing happened the next day. He wouldn't take me out. Too big. So then the third day come, I'm like, listen, I'm not taking no for answer. You're taking me out. <laughs> so he took me out. This guy's name is Corey. He took me out. And I'm in my mind, it was like, you know, 
the biggest thing in the world, right? But it probably wasn't. But in my mind, it was like big waves paddling through the wave. She's like yelling at me as she's paddling next to me, paddle, let's go, push over the wave. Like I felt such momentum and such adrenaline. And then when a wave came, he told me to turn my board around. And I remember he pushes me into the wave and I stood up and I surfed the wave somehow. And I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, oh my God, this is epic. I paddled back out and I looked him in the eye and I said, you just changed my life. <laughs> just like that, I swear to God. So we get back to the beach and there was a gentleman on the, on the, on the beach uh, filming. And he goes, hey, I got your wave on that, on that wave. And I said, oh, no way. Thanks, man. I said, can you like email it to me? He's like, yeah, $100. Oh. I was like, oh my God, really? So I, I ended up doing it because it was so important to me, right? So I still <laughs> yeah. have this funny photo, right? So now fast forward 12 years later, um, surfing has just consumed me and my family. We traveled in our spare time all over the world, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Mexico, uh, you know, Florida, England. I mean, you know, uh, all over the place. And I just, I love it so much. So that was one of the catalysts for us moving is not to just surf and obviously I work, but it's about being in, in, a, in a atmosphere where we can go outside and bike and hike and walk. And the weather's, you know, besides this crazy winter we're having this year in California, right. it's usually nice out. And, you know, being in New York, you're all, it's everything seasonal there. So it's nice to be able to raise my kids in, in, in a coastal environment where um, we get to do a lot of fun things together. And so it's great. So I, I surf as much as possible and it's a passion of mine. Well, that, that, that really, I think, uh, helps us really well round who you are, come around to knowing Thanks. who you are Thanks. beyond Thanks. The, the work. I always forget to ask folks how they, how they want unwind and de-stress in an industry that can get stressful in its own way. And, uh, and that now we all know next time we, we see you somewhere, we'll talk about surfing. With yeah, you that's absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's the best. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Joe. It's really been great oh, getting to know you, you it's better. It's really been a pleasure. Well, we'll, uh, we'll continue to, to chat and I'll reach out to you and, uh, next time we need to, to dig in a little deeper on this, uh, this whole electrical versus low voltage. Yeah. That would be great. wonderful. I really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, Joe Barras is founder and president of TriStar Electric and Automation in Malibu, California. You can learn more about his company at tristarelectricca.com. And that wraps up today's show, which was produced by Residential Tech Today, IPW, and Pretty Easy Podcast. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com if you're looking to get professional production help on your own podcast at an affordable rate. If you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the weekly podcast wherever you watch or listen to podcasts. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at the magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Friday email newsletters. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell. Residential Tech Talks. Residential Tech Talks. Residential Tech Talks.